Hello, everyone. I'm Isaiah Sullivan, and I'm very excited to be sharing my podcast, St. Small Talk, with all you listeners. My guest today is St. Paul City Council member Jane Prince. Jane represents Ward 7 on the east side of St. Paul. She's also served as the city DFL chair and is the former city council aide to Jay Beninov on this episode of St. Small Talk. Jane, thank you so much for coming on. It is such a pleasure, Isaiah. Jane, joining us as always in studio is producer Marshall Saunders as well. Hi, Isaiah. Jane, well, again, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited for this one. You've been... I met you first um, when I was working for Pat Harris. Mm-hmm. It was um, it's not this back in the summer of 2017. There was a park day over on the east side or something mm-hmm. like that. And Pat, I was staffing Pat, and we came over there, and I met you. And you just took us around to everywhere, and you were introducing us to people. And you had endorsed Tom Goldstein for that race, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But you were just very friendly and willing to basically help out wherever. The park that we met up at was Highwood Hills Rec Center. Was that the one that got opened? And that is the one that I was looking to whoever would win the 2019 or 2017 election to help me get that rec center back open because it is in the heart of the Ward 7 East African community. And it's south of Lower Afton Road, which... Most of St. Paul would not have a clue where to find that. Yeah, maybe. That might be me and part of most of St. Paul. (laughs) It is absolutely beautiful out there. And the city had closed that rec center as a result of the the Great Recession. Okay. And it's a part of the city that doesn't have other kinds of services or any kind of community gathering space. And then we have all those families living there. I mean, there was no place for the kids to to go and hang out. You talk to people about St. Paul and how, well, and maybe you, Isaiah, you know, who grew up at the rec center. For sure. Yeah. I had Groveland right up the block. Yeah. Especially with the ice rink. That was most winter nights were spent there. Absolutely. So for all these immigrant families to be there so far from any other city services. The closure of that rec center was kind really problematic. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you were able to get it back up and running, which was fabulous. Yeah. And I know, I mean, that was great on you, great on Mel- uh, Mayor Carter for doing the same thing. I mean, you guys worked together tremendously to accomplish that. And I think all of St. Paul was very happy to see that happen. It was a real breakthrough. So we're really grateful for that. Well, let's let's go back a little bit to when you got started in St. Paul politics, because I know you have been the so at one point, you were the DFL city chair, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. And before that, and maybe alongside that, you were the council aide to Jay Beninoff, who was yes. the council member of Ward 4. Well, you know, the, the actual beginning of my being in politics in St. Paul is something that I'm extremely proud of, but it's kind of ancient history. And that is in 1993... Oh, ancient at 93, so long ago. Well, but, you know, I really, I mean, 27 years, 28 years ago, uh-huh. Andy Dawkins, who was a state representative and is a dear friend of mine. Yeah, I know Andy really well. He's a great guy. Really Tremendous great guy. mustache. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and Andy decided to run for mayor and actually won the DFL endorsement that year on an open seat. He was the state oh. rep. And I supported Andy because he just, he believes in government. 
he is relentless in his hard work to get things done. And I thought, Andy's great in the legislature, but yeah. he would be a fabulous mayor. Yeah. And of course, in 93, it was an open seat. Andy ran against Norm Coleman. Yeah. We all know how that ended. But um, well, what we won't do is I won't. We'll probably have to cut this out depending on what Jane wants. But I'll say this: I do know the story of the kind of the demise of Andy Dawkins' mayoral race. Uh-huh. Do you know this story, Marshall? Real? Not quick. really. But I was working on that election. Oh, really? Uh, Bob, what was his name? Bob. He was a council member. He, Long. Yeah, Bob Long. I worked on his campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at uh, just finishing up at Mac at the time. I was just starting my video production company. We made videos for him, and we also did a website. Really? And hardly anyone had websites back then. That's so hilarious. So we created a website so for, you're a part of that up- for <laughs> Bob Long. And so I went wow. up to the DFL convention. Mm-hmm. Where, at Harding uh, High School. Yeah. And everyone, the, the, the crazy part about that whole election is that everyone knew that Norm Coleman was really a Republican. Oh, yeah. Right. And they knew that he was running as a Democrat because you just had to be a Democrat no. in St. Paul. And that if he won, the mo- you know, he would, within he would, a reasonable switch, time, yeah. he would switch. I mean, it was, it was so bizarre because it was a absolute known secret, not only among political insiders. Yeah. Everyone in the city knew it. There was a moment when Andy was on a hot tub pod, no, a hot tub radio show, right? You, you've got to tell this well, story. Well, the, the thing is, I am so proud of the campaign that we ran. Andy, once he got the endorsement, He had this really broad coalition of people of color. He, you know, he represented the Frogtown neighborhood. It was the most diverse campaign. We had 400 active volunteers. Really? When we sent the thank you letters out after the election, and I looked through, you know, and we're signing letters and writing notes on them and everything. Over half of them were people who I could put a face to. So really, really active volunteers active campaign, and yeah. on the ground. I mean, it was a, it was really a remarkable grassroots campaign. As grassroots as you could get, yeah. Andy did a fabulous job, but he was on the Barbara Carlson show. Now this yeah, Arnie is Carlson, I remember that. Yeah. Arnie's ex-wife, correct? Right? Yeah. Former governor Arnie Carlson's ex-wife Barbara right. had a radio show, and once a week, once a month, something like that, she would do the radio show from her hot tub. She did, but this was not the first no, this, time okay. he was on. Was not the hot tub, but okay. I was there for the hot tub as well <laughs> because that was a funny story. It was equally funny. The Sunday before the primary election. Yeah. All the candidates running in two open seats. Minneapolis had an open seat. St. Paul had an open seat. And I think there were something like 14 candidates. I think in St. Paul we had at least five um, because the DFL endorsement didn't keep Norm out. It didn't keep Marlene Johnson, our um, former lieutenant governor. She ran. John Manillo ran. Oh, yeah. um, it was quite – and in Minneapolis, equally this big array of of mayoral candidates. And they're all sitting in her in some kind of a room that yeah. she was broadcasting from. And she was asking the group hard questions. They were yeah. supposed to raise their hand. So the question came up, how many of you have smoked marijuana? Maybe – a third yeah. of them did. I mean, it was just the beginning yeah. of that kind of being like, sure. well, if it happened in college. Or yeah, this is this is prior to I smoked, but I didn't inhale yeah. by right. Bill Clinton, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. 
And, uh, well, actually, that would have been the 92. Same year. The yeah. same year. Yeah, yeah it would have been. Right. But Andy, he's a completely honest person. So the second question she asked, because she had been tipped off apparently, uh-huh. was how many of you have smoked marijuana in the last five years? Hmm. And Andy raises his hand. And did and anybody else raise their hand? No. And okay. so she calls him up to the mic. And we knew that this question might come up. So we had prepared a response, which was supposed to be, Barbara, I did recently, you know, three years ago at a party. At a party, yeah. I don't anymore, and I've learned from my mistakes. So I'm sitting in the campaign office waiting for him. (laughs) Waiting for the response. To give that. We practiced this, Andy. We practiced it. Yep, yep. And Andy says... To Barbara. So she says, oh, tell me more, Representative Dawkins. And he said, Barbara, when you're my age, it's hard to go to a gathering where dope isn't being smoked. Wow. And he, was, I, he was like, what, 40 at the time? Yeah, he was, he was into his 40s. He, he, was, was, he 40s. was probably in his mid-40s. And people are and listening going, what parties what are you par- going to? Exactly, Isaiah, because not only that. This is the Sunday before the primary, and we've got this big array of candidates. One of them was Ray Pharisee from Highland. Mm. Okay. Um, And so when Andy did this, like, people are scrambling between Sunday and Tuesday to say, Andy, drop out of the race and let Ray, you know, throw your support behind Ray. And Andy said, you know what? It's who I am. I'm being honest. Why lie about it? Yeah. And, and of course, we all felt like... He, he didn't need to lie about it, but we thought that was an answer that he could legitimately give. Yeah, it was a legit answer. He didn't need to tell the entire truth yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, it was like, oh, man. And in hindsight, you know, I just – Andy is one of the most forthright, yeah. good, progressive DFLers I have ever known. So that was kind of your first taste of politics in the, in the Twin Cities. Okay. And then, so how it do you- was, which is kind of remarkable because I came into it because Andy was my friend and I wanted to help him do it. Yeah. And I, my job probably more than anything was to take his incredibly diverse campaign that had uh, dozens of endorsements. I mean, yeah. everybody was all the progressive endorsements, and at that time, sure. um, the Wellstone Alliance, and just keep everybody moving forward and getting the work Entre, done. Yeah. The amazing thing is he won the primary. He and Norm won. It was oh, the top okay. two vote-getters go forward. So he made it through. So And Norm was very much more well-financed than we were. Yeah, yeah. He had all the corporate support. The chamber back then was basically the Republican Party in St. Paul at mm. that time, much less so now. What's what's the next political move for Jim Well, then, then someone called me and said— do you want to be the DFL chair? And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. And I hung up. <laughs> and then that was quick. And then I thought, wait a minute. And this was in 95, you, I think. You have a law degree, correct? I didn't then. You didn't yet. Okay. I started thinking about all the things that the party could do better to win elections. Yeah. And here we had Norm, who was basically running against the party. And so I thought, you know— I really learned so much on Andy's campaign. It would be, it would be the right thing for me to try yeah. to build a stronger DFL. And, and you'd been um, a DFLer for your life before that point. 
Well, I had not been active in politics until we became homeowners and oh, okay. you know started going to caucuses and that whole thing. I ran for DFL chair, but yeah. of course— In quotations, in, you ran. In, yeah, air yeah. quotes, um, because nobody wanted to do it at that oh, point. Oh, really? You know, Norm was the head of the— DF, I mean, he's the at the top of our party, the city party, sure. and he's running against it. And he's, oh. you know, running. He wouldn't endorse our school board slate and all this stuff. Oh. My job that year was to get our council candidates through and our school board slate. And we had four candidates running who the DFL endorsed ticket. And Norm had said he couldn't support the ticket. Oh, really? And then of all people... Howard Orenstein, who's beloved over here in Highland, brilliant guy, very highly respected, really wonderful person, and a really good DFLer. He had said to me, Jane, the DFL's out of touch, and I just can't, I just can't get behind this slate. I mean, he may have gotten behind a couple of yeah. them, but so it's kind of like we all get together. This is yeah. one of my favorite political stories. I'll tell it very quickly, but everybody came. To my kitchen, all the school board candidates over in, in there, Dayton Bluff, over in Dayton's Bluff, and we're sitting in my living room. And of course, another person that you won't remember, but Bill Carlson, who was a school board member, or had been a school board member and was helping the campaigns, said, "I have never been so hot in my life as I was that day in your kitchen because we don't have <laughs> air conditioning." So that was interesting. But anyway, you and Shirley Ersted, no air conditioning. You guys are crazy. <laughs> Call us good environmentalists. That we very support. thin line between crazy and good <laughs> environmental. <laughs> but the thing that we decided to do at that meeting in my kitchen was, oh, and you know, only in St. Paul, everybody says the reason we need the school board slate is, and they go through, they've said, you know, it's the this tax issue and this and this. We put together a full page ad for the villager oh, yeah. that was full of charts and graphs <laughs> and fine print and stuff. It it did not look like it wasn't an visually ad. appealing. But you know what? That darn thing, three of our four candidates made it through. For mm. the school board? For the school board that year, and I swear it was that ad because we were running yeah. against Howard and Norm and and the one candidate that didn't make it. Now this is a school board race was the one that didn't do lawn signs. So it's oh, just really? kind of, yeah, because yeah, school board, you have to I'm run. A, I'm such a believer in lawn signs vote. People yeah. people say lawn signs don't vote. And I remember the first campaign I was on, Harris goes, he goes, they say lawn signs don't vote. They do vote because a lot of people don't pay attention until the day of. And they see their neighbor at the lawn sign and they go out and vote the same way as their neighbor that they right. like and respect. Well, name recognition yeah, is so yeah. important. Huge. And that, I think that was the big thing here was that school board candidates have to run citywide. Yeah. And it's impossible to get to all the doors. So lawn signs are critical in school board races just to get that name recognition. Yeah. Anyway, I was very proud of that. And Howard congratulated me, which was very yeah. meaningful. I was reelected as DFL chair in 97. And that was when the slate of candidates included Jay Beninov. For Ward 4. Right. And so when Jay won the election, he his campaign manager, you know, usually it's somebody on his campaign yeah. that would that would be the aide, that would be the logical person to choose. But Jay actually asked me if I would apply and he interviewed people. And, you know, the idea that I could get a job 
where I could just schmooze at City <laughs> Hall for a living and be paid for it was the most thrilling prospect. Yeah, Jane, so, sign me up for that. That sounds fantastic and right up my alley. I tell you, the legislative aid jobs are the best. Really? Yeah, well, and, because— yeah, I mean, it, your legislative aide, Stephanie, is—Stephanie Hare is fantastic. Yeah, she yeah, is. She's a wonderful woman, and I, I get along with her fantastic. Wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. So shout, so shout out Stephanie. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Stephanie, she is a wonder. Yeah. She definitely keeps us moving forward yeah. through so, thick and thin. <laughs> so you become Jay's aide in 1998 is when you, I think yeah. he takes office. Yeah. And he was there till when? 2007. Okay. Oh, so you were there for almost 10 years? 10 with years. Him. 10 years. Yeah, it was. 10 full years. 10 years. So, and that's when I went back to law school. Okay. And you got it at William Mitchell, correct? I got it at Hamlin's Weekend oh, at Hamlin. Program. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Jay ran on a lot of progressive principles, mm-hmm. and he had a lot of passion for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the stuff that you tried to get done and you were pushing for back oh, then? Oh, man. I tell you, Jay was an outstanding elected official. I could not have been happier working for him. I, You know, when I, when I started to work, and he would say, you're not working for me. You're working with me. And he very much made me uh, a colleague. Yeah. I mean, we, it, was, it was really a partnership because he had a background. He'd been a, a deputy commissioner of labor and industry at the state. He, he's, he's really smart. He was very easygoing. Oh, really? And I, I always thought of myself as easygoing. And some people used to actually think of me as being kind of shy, <laughs> shy and retiring. And I go to work with Jay, and we're having one of our first meetings with the dean of students at St. Thomas. Oh, yeah? Um, and it was Al Sickbert, who Al ended up being the dean of students at Hamlin okay. when I was going to law school there. But, but Al was the dean of student life at St. Thomas, and one of the reasons that— Jay had run for office was that he wanted to be able to deal with the party house issue. So we're in this meeting with Al, who's a lovely, lovely guy. But Jay's just being so calm and just, you know, it was our first meeting. And he's just kind of, you know, asking Al questions and Al's answering questions. And I'm thinking, the elephant in the room here, you guys. (laughs) What the heck? Let's and get so this. I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then I thought, that does it. So yeah. I asked, you know, a, a very forthright, tough and kind of rude question. I said, Dean Sickbert, does St. Thomas feel good about its students being known for public urination? That's and, great it, and it's like, and Jay and I really didn't know each other at that point. And I'm <laughs> thinking, you know, here I am, like just kind of jumping off this cliff. So anyway, the meeting the meeting ended after I, you know, kind of tried to put poor Al on the spot about, you know, yeah. na- student students disrupting neighborhood life in, in Marion Park and, and Mac Groveland. After the meeting was over, I said, I said, Jay, I am so sorry that I jumped in and, and kind of yeah. changed the tone of the meeting. I said, I, I said, I hope I, I'm really sorry I won't do it again. And he said, no. <laughs> do it again. He liked it. I want you to do that. So that was kind of the way our— That's the way the partnership uh, formed. The way uh. the partnership formed. And and so when I left City Hall after 10 years then, people were calling me things like Jay's Pitbull. 
<laughs> so you can imagine how I. That is so funny because I I just know you as like the sweetest woman in my world. Oh, and and you know, no one. My reputation preceded me when I came back in 2016, and people had said things like they. They were afraid for once well, I, I got rem- elected. I remember this. And this is – so you were elected in 2015. Yeah. Uh, filling Kathy Lantry's spot when she went to go to public works, right. correct? Why, why did you decide to run? Why were you running in 2015? You know, working with Jay had been such a complete joy and pleasure. And I had learned so much about how to do the job. You yeah. know, I, I mean, Jay was a perfect mentor to me in terms of the way he got things done. He did take very – staunch, progressive positions and was able to accomplish so much. Okay. I had at one point thought, you know, if Kathy ever decides not to run, maybe I'll run. Yeah. And then when the seat was open, all of a sudden it was like, shoot, I don't really feel like running for it, but I'll, but I'll kick myself if I don't. So that okay. is eventually how like I came to. around to it. I thought, you know what? I If I lose an election, that's fine. I'll get over it. But if I never give it a shot, I will yeah. I will wonder it. if I – yeah. I, that, that's what I decided. And I, it, it really has been such an incredible honor. But when you look at it, Ward 4 that you had helped serve with Jay Beninoff for 10 years – that constituency, that base looks very different than Ward 7. Totally. Right? totally. And they got they have e- even different geography. Because my understanding was that you were a very passionate, progressive, and liberal when you were working with Jay. And that you guys pushed those policies because you believed them and that, that's what you were doing. And actually at the time, you butted heads a little bit with Dan Bostrom, mm-hmm. council member Dan Bostrom oh, representing yeah. Ward 6. Oh, yeah. Dan was – he was somebody who definitely did not want me back at City Hall. Exactly. So he didn't <laughs> want you back there because you guys have been so adversarial. Mm-hmm. He told You told me that he told you that he was very nervous when you came in and he thought he had to like gear up and get ready for battle yeah. when, when you were elected. But when you were – you said well, when I was in Ward 4, we had these progressive values. We were fighting for things that we really believed in. When I started in Ward 7, the issues are so clear cut on what I have to get yeah. done mm-hmm. that I don't, I don't always have time for that kind of stuff. I yeah. want parks open. I want rec centers right. open. I want better education for the kids in my neighborhood. I'm, I'm fighting for you know inclusion, diversity, and all these great things. I want to help with the homelessness. And it's kind of are, like a political Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yep. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really that's a great way fundamentals to done, and then we can move on to other and the, stuff. And the east that side was a, craving those fundamentals. Yeah, well, exactly. Marshall, that is a really good observation because that's exactly right. For both Dan and I, yeah. it was kind of like, whoa, who would ever think that we'd end up being each other's best Ally you guys did really get along. Issues. Oh, and, you know, and that's just it. It is so clear what the needs of the East Side are and that we needed to work together. And similarly now, Councilmember Yang, yeah. Nelsie, is 25 years old. She has background in organizing. Mm. She is very, very progressive. And so now I'm kind of like perceived as being more conservative. Yeah. And she is perceived as being very much further left than me. And we're the same way. It's yeah. like we're each other's you guys are working together a best lot. colleagues because we share the east side and we need it to be successful. And all of our issues are the same. Yeah. 
Because, so, I mean, the line between Ward 6 and 7 is pretty thin. Yeah. You guys represent the east side almost in its entirety, I believe. Yeah. And there is a section that's part of Ward 5 under Council President Bren Moan that is between 35E and Edgerton. Okay. Yeah. But, you, but, I mean, that's just a great point to be made that you have to work with your colleagues in getting these the, these things done. Yeah. The, the basics of what city government needs to perform for its constituents. You know, George Latimer, I was working at um, the Department of Planning and Economic Development in the late 80s. And when the, the Hmong um, were moving to yeah. St. Paul and Mayor Latimer really welcomed that community here. And as I recall, I our public housing agency was able to get a waiver of the residency requirement oh, interesting. so that Hmong refugees could move into our public housing communities. And so that is very much how it happened, that St. Paul became that center of Hmong relocation That's a wonderful settlement. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of my goals when I was the city DFL chair, to, to do a better job of connecting political DFLers on the east side who at that point tended to be more conservative with those on the west side of town yeah. who tended to be more progressive and liberal. And I and I called that effort hands across 35E. That's right. And that ended up uh, that was a real movement that you created, correct? Yeah, well, I, we you know, we bring it up every now and then because we really want to be able to strengthen those relationships sure. across town because it's so important that St. Paul be one city. Yes, and that we don't look at it as west side and east side, Highland Park. Highland Park, Union Park, and the rest of St. Paul. You yeah, know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah. I think I think that's actually something that I think all of us can do a better job of is like understanding the real geography mm-hmm. of St. Paul mm-hmm. and know that it's not just east of the river until downtown. There's this entire really beautiful area on the east side. Dayton's yeah, Bluff is a really pretty neighborhood. Yeah, it really is. But that leads into another conversation of the crime that's going on in mm-hmm. St. Paul. And a lot of it's going on on the east side, but mm-hmm. then there's a ton of crime on the west side too. And yeah. just in terms of one St. Paul, just recently, Brian Ingram, the mm-hmm. owner of the Gnome, posted a video of him explaining the fifth break-in he's had in the past few months mm-hmm. at the Gnome where they stole a safe. My question to you is, I know there are conversations going on at the city level about crime. Mm-hmm. What do those conversations look like? After Brian's story yes. hit, I'm looking at our council agenda, and I'm th- and there was very little on it. I mean, it was a really light agenda on Wednesday, and I thought, we have got to have a crime report. And the next morning, I got a call from from Rebecca Naker, who said, we're going to have the cops come yeah. to our meeting on Wednesday. Ward so, 1 representative, Rebecca Naker, right? Yeah. Councilman, okay, no, yeah. Ward 2. Ward 2. We're yeah, two councilwoman, Rebecca Naker. Okay. And, and she knows Brian through the Hope Breakfast Bar. Sure. And then, of course, the gnome is in Ward 1. We had a report from Deputy Chief... Rob Thomaser at our meeting, and he shared statistics, and crime is up, and we have crises in our city that, you know, there's COVID, there's not enough for kids to do, there's, frankly, I mean, it was a good report in terms of giving us a lot of information that we need to do something about, you know, catalytic converter thefts, just a terrible, expensive problem for people to have, and imagine how it hits people in 
in my, on my side of town, lower income renters, people who Absolutely. park on the street because they don't have garages. It's it's a very costly crime. Carjackings, people are frightened. And we've got to do a better job. I think our police are working really hard. I have tremendous confidence in Chief Axtell and As his do team. I. I'm a big fan of Chief Axtell. He is, he is really an amazing chief. You know, I'm going to say something, and it makes me unpopular, and I, I am just going to say it. We didn't have a police academy in 2020. Now, everybody yeah. knows we had a terrible budget year. But what we do with the police academy is throughout the year, people are retiring, resigning, being on various leaves. So at the, at the second half of every year, we hold a police academy and we're able to hire yes. up to full strength. Full strength, you know, the mayor has knocked those numbers down a little bit the last couple of years. We had gotten up as high as a budgeted number of 635. I think the full, Budgeted number is about 620. Okay. But right now, in terms of deployable cops on the street, we're at 570. Okay, so like 50, 50 cops lower. Yeah, and we, and we didn't have an academy, so we weren't able to build up to full strength, which means that that attrition that happens over the course yeah. of the year, which, you know, you can... Set your watch that we're going to lose some number of people through resignations and retirement. When we get to July, which is the peak time for crime in our city, we're going to be at the lowest number of cops that we've probably had in in who knows how long. Possibly decades. decades. uh, We could get down to around 540. And I will say in in the neighborhoods that I represent, which are very diverse, yeah. um, we the east side just simply has a higher crime rate all the time. You know, yeah. it's 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 just the way life is. There's more crime on the east side than there is in other parts of town. The people I talk to on the east side, when I go to community meetings, when I door knocked in twenty nineteen when sure. we were having the spike in gun violence that mm-hmm. fall. I asked every voter at the door that I talked to, do you believe that we should be reducing our number of police? Because the mayor had put that in that budget. That was one of the cuts that did go through. And to a person in my door knocking, nobody was asking us to— to cut cops. And we've got a great East team commander. We've got a great East team. The The cops are very well known in the community. And sure. People like them and trust them. And of course, there are problems um, that things happen. Yeah. But on balance, people have a, a really high regard for our East team. Especially St. Paul police officers. And I, I do mean that. We have a tremendous police force in St. Paul. We do, Isaiah. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of them. And I know it's not the same everywhere. And police aren't the same everywhere. But thanks to Chief Axtell and the past few chiefs that we have had, right. they've been able to cultivate a very strong and respectful and diverse group of officers. Exactly. The culture of our police department for as long as I've been paying attention, which goes back beyond your um, (laughs) – back to ancient history again. The chiefs we have had, the last several chiefs, they have all come up through the ranks. There's a high level of trust and regard for the for the people who have advanced to the chief position. And there's a 
a culture of reform and innovation. They are constantly, constantly working on process improvements, on training improvements, and innovating. They're, I think they're the first um, department in the state that fulfilled all the goals of Obama's 21st century policing. Oh, really? So where do we go? I mean, it, it, it can't, because obviously it isn't just adding more police, because that's a very contentious topic. Yeah. We can put that aside for a second. Mm-hmm. And we can look at it right now, and you're saying COVID-19, there's less for kids to do. And there was a report out just now that the crime sweeping the country is done in large part by youth, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that has to do with, you know, rec centers were closed for a while, mm-hmm. youth sports aren't going on, schools aren't open. The mayor, late in 2019, as part of the budget, the city council passed a program just under $2 million of community-first public safety programming that is designed exactly as you're talking about to get at root causes, to look at who is committing the crimes and how to how to make yeah. a difference there. And the problem is those programs should have started to take effect in January of 2020. But when we all went home... In March of 2020, yeah. they really hadn't gotten off the ground. In March, we, you know, everybody goes home, the rec center's closed, the libraries are effectively, you know, everything's cut back. And those community first public safety investments all kind of get put on hold because yeah. it's kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Well, meanwhile, council member and Yang and I, um, who were having all this gun violence in the spring in our yeah. on the east side, yes. reached out to the Minneapolis Group Violence Intervention Program that is run by Sasha Cotton, who was a St. Paul resident, doing an amazing job with that program to intervene in youth violence, pretty much youth violence, gang violence, and gun violence. And we called Sasha and said, you know, have you been able to continue to run your programs during COVID? And this was probably in May. And she went through how their programs were running and how their similar workers to our community ambassadors, how they were still meeting kids out on the street. They were able to continue the programs. I, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt that because the programs had not started over here, that it was hard to start them yeah. up with COVID. And it was hard to transition them right away to something that was COVID-friendly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so that was the problem. That also says something else to you, which is when you invest in community-first public safety efforts and you don't do them Everything still falls to the police. Yes. Everything still results in a 911 and, yeah. call. So it, it's been hard. It's been completely understandable why those programs haven't really had the impact that they, that we hope they would. But I, I can honestly say I'm, I'm now that we're, you know, a year later. Um, we met with the program leaders and the mayor's staff who are in charge of those programs and, early December, and we said, you got to get these off the ground. Yeah. I mean, we really get that COVID was a problem, but we've got to start seeing these things begin to fulfill their promise, even if it's not in as large of numbers as you were hoping to be able to 
So I, I'm feeling impatient about the Community yeah. First Public Safety Agenda, but I, I support it for sure. Just as, you know, when I came into office in 2016, my first goal was to get the rec centers open that yeah. had been closed in my ward. You can't close rec centers in areas of poverty where kids don't have other options. Absolutely. The other thing that I believe is not happening is what we're doing right here. You know, we're having a conversation about a community problem. What can we all do? And I believe the city needs to do a better job of communicating with everybody about what's going on, where the hotspots are, how we can work together. You know, even with Brian Ingram. and That's what he said, right? He said he wished he got a note from the city that there was a robbery just down the block a couple of days before, right? Right. He's like, if I had known that they're doing this, maybe I would have been more vigilant. Well, see, this is it. I think that... And I am not making any excuses for this. I think that the city is not communicating adequately during these periods of time yeah. when we're not in our offices. We've got to be communicating with the citizens because if they don't see us and they don't hear from us, it's like nobody's in charge. And I really feel that we need to have some more proactive communication coming out to the whole community about how we can work together to look out for us, for each other, and for the businesses in our community. I mean, we've just got to keep our eyes peeled all over the place. When it comes to the carjacking problem, interesting information. A lot of cars are stolen because people leave them running. Yes, to especially in the up. winter. Yeah. yeah. And so don't leave your car running. There's no. an obvious one. But the other one is, and I don't have, you know, I don't have air conditioning, so neither do I have a car without a key ignition. But <laughs> but if you can warm your car up without unlocking yeah. it. Yeah, an automatic start. An automatic start and heating up your car, the carjacker sees that car running and they know you're going to be coming out. I mean, there was a woman who was just in a car accident, I think on River Road. She gets out of the car to assess everything. The person that hits her mugs her and they steal her car. We've got to find out how to deal with that because that question just came in the other day. What do we do? I yeah. mean, you, yeah. What does a citizen do? I mean, you, you, you give them everything you got. You don't want to get potentially yeah. killed. And I live yeah. in Highland Park. You know, the, the Talbot's uh, robbery. Yeah, yeah. That I'm, really unbelievable. freaked a lot of people I work, out. I work at a liquor store. Yeah. We think a lot about what happens. Right. I mean, liquor stores are pretty common places to get stuck up. Because you know there's cash. You know there's cash yeah. and there's booze. A lot yeah. of people <laughs> steal the booze. <laughs> right. And you can steal something. I mean, you can grab a bottle of scotch that's $150, and that's a pretty easily transferable thing right. that's expensive. Right. And we're nervous sometimes. Not I shouldn't say sometimes. We're, we're nervous that it might potentially happen. Yeah, it's it's definitely not acceptable, and we got to figure it out. And and that's why you know I I have to say that I go back to so we're going to have fewer cops. We don't know if we're going to have a twenty twenty one police academy. We can't have fewer cops right now. Yeah, and you know I I agree so much about Talbots. I'm I'm a regular Talbot shopper. I'm I'm from New England originally. <laughs> so I like to say I go there to get my native costumes. <laughs> <laughs> to think about those wonderful employees at Talbots. I mean that is the most it, yeah, I mean it's just really yeah. not acceptable. And it's and, scary. It's and, yeah, scary, it's scary get, because they were cooperating. Right? They, were cooperating. they were giving they got whatever pistol they whipped, were, right? Yeah, and beat up. Yeah. Oh my god. When Chief Thomaser was talking to us about the 
crime wave. And he said, I do not want to blame any other part of the judicial system. But he said, we are apprehending so many of these people who are carjacking, who are committing gun crimes, who are have guns, who shouldn't have them. We bring them in. They go through the process, and they're out in two days. Right. Or they're yeah. out right away. I felt like I was being explosive, but I said, we have got to get out of our silos and solve yeah. that problem. I mean, if it's that we're not prosecuting, that we're not filing charges. You know, I've talked to John Choi a little bit about it. The Ramsey County Attorney, John Choi. Yep. With COVID, they don't want to keep people in jail. And so there are all these competing issues But imagine if you're a cop and you're out there being able to actually apprehend a carjacker and then you find out that they're back on the street in two days. So some of these some of these people are are really dangerous and they should not be back out on the streets. And that, you know, behooves all of us to say we we have in St. Paul We know how to solve problems. We have a history of coming together as a community and making things better. And so if this is what the problem is, that we're catching the same carjackers over and over again and the same aggravated assaults or whatever, whatever, burglars. I mean, he told us about a burglar over here in Highland, right back out on the street. Yeah. Somebody who was a repeat offender. With a record. So, Jane, what do you say to your constituents that are scared? They sincerely see this crime wave in St. Paul Mm -hmm. and they're nervous. They see, they're like, I don't want to live here. I got kids, you know, or I I live with my elderly parent or something Mm -hmm. like that. What what do you as as a representative of them say? Like I say, crime is more a part of life on the east side. I, you know, it shouldn't be, but it is. So, east siders are tough, but they don't want to have to be that tough. Yeah. They don't want to get used to it. And I just had a an email from a woman who, you know, her family was able to put the money together to buy a house in Dayton's Bluff. And they were so excited about it. And they have been victimized a couple times. And there have been a few incidents in their neighborhood that were really disconcerting. What I have always done, and in fact, when I worked for Jay, we used to do this. I mean, when there's an incident, we we call a meeting. You know, yeah. we, um, we contact our East Team Commander, Senior Commander Hallstrom, who's just a terrific guy. We have Zoom meetings. We get people together. We say, call your neighbors and let's figure out a strategy. Yeah. I mean, I that's what I'm able to do on my ward. The East team is very practiced at this. They will increase patrols. They So you're able to do that? Increase yeah, patrol? And, and Yeah. I mean, if there are hot spots like this, you know, this new resident of Dayton's Bluff, I, you know, I reached out to Commander Hallstrom and I said, you know, could we try to put some extra patrols on there? You know, just just add that as kind of a regular drive through. It's a really easy part of the neighborhood to access, so it's not going out of their way. But also, you know, we're going to put her in touch with 
people that we know in her on her block yes who are good neighbors and so that she has people she can call and reach out to and then they're all kind of connecting which i mean that it's not a solution it's a response that may that that can help to um empower people to look out more carefully for each other also it gives them you know a, the police commander gives people his email, his cell phone. And I mean, we have very responsive cops on that kind of stuff. And you know, the other thing, poverty is such a problem on the east side. I mean, uh, St. Paul has a fair amount of poverty and we can't have our kids feel hopeless. We can't have our kids feel that we're not paying attention to them and helping them be successful and investing in them. And so I I do think, you know, we haven't done a good job. Another problem I've worked on, we have 2,000 homeless kids in our St. Paul public schools. That's That doesn't include the charter schools. That's kids who don't have a regular place to lay their head at night. I mean, I haven't seen the number... This year, I suspect it's worse. It's probably worse. But that was the number last year. And so, you know, kids, kids and pov- families in poverty are facing some terrible challenges. COVID is a huge one. So it, it really is no wonder no. that the kids are resorting to violent crime. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but we got to figure it out and we've got to get those kids the help they, and those families, we've got to get kids and families the help they need. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to be happy to hear your words that you're doing your best to address this problem. And you recognize that it is a serious thing that a lot of uh, your constituents and constituents across, citizens across St. Paul are feeling. And kind of bring us to a next conversation. You have recently taken on the role of bringing about conversations on reparations Mm -hmm. in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm really interested to hear how that even started for you. Maybe about 10 years ago, I started doing much more reading about black history and that history of our country that I just didn't know that much about, you know. I think I think for for so many of us, you know, we saw Gone with the Wind and we get this idea of what slavery was. And when you when you go back and you read um what the terrible history of our country has been for African Americans, there is nothing. I I concluded after a lot of this reading that there is no way we could ever make up for what we have done to African-American descendants of slavery. So there's 250 years of slavery where they they are abused and dehumanized and families aren't allowed to exist. And then slavery ends and we promise them 40 acres and a mule, which didn't happen. You know, that's followed by Jim Crow and forced segregation and the lynching period. And then people migrate to the north and they face redlining and racial covenants and discrimination in jobs and housing and, and, you know, get pushed aside up here and unable to achieve success for themselves and their families. You also look at the terrible black-white disparities in our country, in our state, and in our city. And and they're in every area, healthcare, housing, education. Wrestling with this in my own mind, and about two years ago, I met this wonderful guy 
community organizer by the name of Traren Cruz. He is right now the co-chair of the National Green Party. Oh. And he also, for the last several years, has been the national co-chair of the Green Party's Reparation Committee. Okay. So I was at a community conference, and I went to a session that he was doing on reparations. I learned so much about it from him. About maybe six months or a year later, I saw that the city of Evanston, Illinois, was passing a reparations ordinance. Really? They passed an ordinance, uh, a reparations ordinance, where they have identified as a revenue stream, the city tax on recreational marijuana. So there's marijuana again. When we when we legalize it here, it will generate some tax dollars that we that could be very helpful for yeah. any, any number of things. But in Evanston, that is a dedicated revenue stream. They have established a permanent reparations commission that then chooses how to invest those dollars. I called Trey And I said, you know, Evanston just did this. Maybe we should start, you know, kind of talking to people about this in St. Paul. So we went over to talk to Peter Ratcliffe. At the Eastside Freedom Library. Library, And we said, Peter, we want to get people in St. Paul understanding Black American history. Sure. And the need for reparations. Trey has written, he actually has written an ordinance that he calls the St. Paul Recovery Act. Peter Ratcliffe has been curating our re- reparations reading group for a oh. year. It's a year this month. It's been just a great experience, tremendous reading, tremendous conversations. And Trey formed the St. Paul Recovery Act and Community Reparations Steering Committee. They drafted the resolution. I've been working with them on it, but they brought it into the council in December and early January, and seven council members signed on to sponsor it. Oh, really? So it is a really important step forward. Seven out of seven council members. Seven out of seven, and as sponsors. So, you know, that means we're going to vote for it, but we're also in with both feet. So that was extremely exciting for the committee. So does that look like reparations to black citizens of St. Paul? The way the resolution is written, it is a commitment to explore reparations as part of a racial healing process. And I will say, when we started all our work in the steering committee forum, that was before George Floyd's death. We're creating a legislative advisory committee. Um, We're we're now on a really tight schedule to get uh, a committee appointed that will do community forums, that will look at what other cities have done, we'll look at research, we'll look at the data, and we'll create an ordinance that will create a commission, a permanent commission, that will advise the city on investment of resources. We haven't figured out if they're going to be, if we're going to have a dedicated revenue source. Gotcha. I think we're going to have a lot more conversations about people who have not been able to achieve success in St. Paul. So it includes our Native American community. It includes our other immigrant groups and and other ethnic groups. I think it's part of a, a way the city's sort of finally saying, and I think after George Floyd, that 
we need to make St. Paul a place that truly does, I mean, the mayor's words, St. Paul is a city that works for everyone. And and we need solutions that are actually not just Band-Aids on problems. I, I think the biggest uh, question that I get or the big, biggest thought that I get from people who might have a little bit of opposition or a lot of opposition to reparations is, okay, you know, we were a state that didn't have slavery, even though, you know, Dred Scott decision, there was mm-hmm. a lot of, one can point to a, a vast history of racism in Minnesota, mm-hmm. but um, and not to mention the lynchings in Duluth. I mean, there, there's any number of things, but, you know, on a, on a national level, on a scale, we might we would certainly be down the list of states that sponsored or promoted slavery. Uh, it was a national issue. Obviously, we went to war as a nation uh, regarding it. Why St. Paul? Why why a city in the middle of Minnesota? Why should we be worrying about reparations when it is such a national issue? There is no question that it's a national issue. And our resolution calls for our federal delegation and our and our state leaders to be considering reparations. So we're going to be lobbying. And in fact, H.R. 40 is John Conyers' bill that he entered in the 1980s in the House. I believe Trey... He was in Washington this week in hopes that H.R. 40 will be brought forward for a vote on the House floor. And what's great about that, I I reached out to Betty McCollum, our congresswoman, and said, just so you know, we passed this resolution on reparations. We'd love you to vote for H.R. 40 if it comes forward. And she is an original sponsor. Oh, really? So, So that was just fantastic to hear, as is Ilhan Omar and Minneapolis and Dean Phillips. And it absolutely should happen at the federal level. The reason, well, there are a couple of reasons I could give for for why it's important for St. Paul or why it's appropriate for St. Paul to be considering reparations. Minnesota is ranked, I believe, depending on, you know, who is doing the numbers, as as the fourth worst state to live in if you're mm-hmm. African-American. Our education gap is one of the worst in the country. And I think what we have to do in Minnesota is look at the institution of slavery in terms of the way it just became part of the institutional and systemic racism that really pervaded our country. I mean, one of the the first things I learned from Peter Radcliffe when we started the reading group is, you know, when you're a new nation, you've just gained your independence and you're 13 states here that are suddenly needing to compete in the world, it really helps that you stole your land and that you had slave labor. Our ability to be an economic powerhouse as a new country is based on slavery. And then I think you also need to look at, there's an author by the name of Christopher Lehman. He is a professor at St. Cloud State. And he came to our reading group in January and talked about his book called Slavery's Reach in the North Star State. 
what he did is he looked at, I mean, a number of the names that we know in St. Paul. The only one that's coming to mind right now is Eigelhart. But, you know, John Calhoun, Lake Calhoun. Sure. Um, sure. Slaveholders that, that invested in real estate in Minnesota. Christopher said, over on the east side, all the streets, it's like geranium, rose, magnolia. Um, that was all part of a subdivision that was bought and sold by a slaveholder. The other thing is that a lot of slave owners vacationed here, even though we were a free state. They vacationed here and they brought their slaves with them and nobody noticed. Right. I mean, it was illegal for them to bring slaves to Minnesota. But they did it anyway. But they did it anyway. And of course, Dred Scott established that you could you could, you could yeah. be a slave and come to a free territory and still not be a free person. So, so what do you say to people who say that they were born in 1985? Slavery was er- eradicated for over 100 years, and they don't feel that their tax dollars should go towards reparations. I don't know. Obviously, we haven't ascertained a revenue stream yet or anything like that, but they're, they're against it for that reason. I mean, I'm a white person. My family didn't, you know, we didn't come from the South. We grew up in Massachusetts, which was one of those places that had a really terrific textile industry in the early years of the country. And my dad was a combat veteran in the Pacific in World War II, so a terrible combat, came home and through the GI Bill was able to afford to buy a house and raise three kids, and my mom didn't work, which was pretty typical in the 50s. But as a result of the GI Bill, you know, that was the beginning of his family establishing this generational wealth and sending us all to college and so forth. When black combat veterans came home from World War II, the ability to use the GI Bill was really constrained by the fact that they couldn't get into schools or they couldn't buy homes. I think that we we as white Americans have benefited from a system of of institutionalized racism. And I get it that people feel like, well, is is this really the way that my tax dollars should be spent? I mean, I I was in a restaurant one day with one of my constituents who I adore him, but he was he has a loud voice and he's kind of a conservative. And and we're having coffee. And he said, Jane, I just don't understand why I have to pay these increased taxes when I don't have any kids in school. (laughs) And a guy sitting at another table came over and he said, but somebody paid for you to go to school. And I think that's part of it is this parsing of, well, my tax dollars shouldn't go to this or my tax dollars shouldn't go to that. I think the the goal is here is to lift up African-Americans so that they're on this to level the playing field. Sure. And and I think, you know, I always think about that Paul Wellstone quote, we all do better no, when, when we, we all do better. Absolutely. I mean, whatever it is, your tax dollars are going to pay for a lot of programs that are supposed to close disparities that just don't do it. You know, you your tax dollars have gone to pay for a, for programs that have have allowed these 
inequities and disparities sure. to continue to exist. So, so maybe we need to look at things in a new way. So what about constituents who say, you know, crime is up. I can't get my streets plowed. You know, there's other city services that aren't being met right now. Mm-hmm. And they are distraught with this is the conversation that we're having. You know, I, the thing about it is, as I've said, we have not talked about a revenue st- stream. The fact that I feel like the African-American community needs to lead, lead this effort means that I'm not comfortable talking about, you know, would it ever result in reparations payments? I mean, my sense is at the city level, that would likely not happen. But nothing's off the table in terms of this conversation. It's one of the things that really frustrates me in terms of inequities in Minnesota it's our subsidizing of professional sports teams. You know, there's there's one for me that is, I come from Massachusetts. Pats the, are big. The Crafts built the Craft Stadium and they pay taxes on it. The Red Sox owners built Fenway. They way upgraded it a couple of years ago and they pay taxes on it. How the heck have we as a state gotten ourselves into the position of using tax dollars to pay for billionaires who own sports teams and who, you know, if if my husband, I don't follow football very well, but I understand we paid really a lot of money for that Vikings quarterback that isn't very good. <laughs> you know, that's one of my issues about our priorities as a state. I would never have had my tax dollars going no. to paying for professional stadiums because I think the people who who own teams and are in that field have a have the money to be able to do so, that. So yeah, to your point, if we're able to subsidize billionaires making money and a giant stadium, several of them actually in fact, yeah. then we should be able to take care of citizens in this manner that yeah. you that you believe and it seems a lot of our council members and a lot of citizens in St. Paul believe we should. And, and I also think that People don't have to take it personally. Like, I didn't have slaves. I My family didn't come out of that background. Uh, we're immigrants from Ireland that came here in the 20s. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing about it is, I mean, people have said, my, my Irish ancestors who we're, came here to work for James J. Hill were treated like slaves. And, and so, you know, I think we have to recognize, and, and that's, in a way, I think— a good conversation for us to have. Yeah. That about does it for you and me, Jane. Again, thank you so much for coming on. I had a, I just had a blast talking with you, like I always do. And it's so good to be able to talk with you and, uh, and really just hear your voice. Oh, you dear guy. Yeah. Well, it's really been fun for me, and I'm so glad you're doing this. Yeah, it's been and a And everybody blast. loves the name St. Small Talk. <laughs> So thank you again, Jane, for coming on. What a tremendous time we had together. I learned so much from you, as I do in every conversation. And thanks to all you listening. If you enjoy listening to St. Small Talk, feel free to visit our Facebook page, St. Small Talk, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at St. Small Talk. That's S-A-I-N-T-S-M-A-L-L-T-A-L-K. St. Small Talk is brought to you by Minnesota Podcasting Studios. Minnesota's premier podcasting outfit for professional and entertainment podcasts alike. Our logo design is made by Galen Rick at Mighty Fine Design, a Twin Cities-based graphic design company. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for listening.